Sponsorship of the KQED live audio stream comes from Xfinity Mobile, featuring customized wireless plans. Customers can choose unlimited, buy the gig, shared data, or a mix of both and switch it up anytime. Learn more at XfinityMobile.com. From KQED in San Francisco, this is the Writer's Block. My name is Ellen Ullman. I'm the author of the novel By Blood. I'll be reading excerpts from the opening of the book. I did not cause her any harm. This was a great victory for me. At the end of it, I was a changed man. I am indebted to her. It was she who changed me, although I never learned her name. My involvement with the young woman in question began several years ago, in the late summer of 1974, while I was on leave from the university. I sought to secure for myself a small office in the downtown business district of San Francisco, where I intended to prepare a series of lectures about the humanities, the kindly ones, the third play in Aeschylus's great trilogy. A limited budget brought me to the edge of a rough, depressed neighborhood, and my first sighting of the prospective office building, eight begrimed gargoyles crouched beneath the parapet, their eyes eaten away by time, nearly caused me to retrace my steps. But there was no question of my turning back. Immediately upon my arrival in San Francisco a month earlier, a great gloom had descended upon me. I had arranged my leave in great haste. I knew no one in the area, and it must have been this isolation that had engendered in me a particularly obdurate spell of the nervous condition to which I had been subject since boyhood. Although I was then a grown man of fifty years, the illness, as ever, cast me back into the dark emotions of my pre-adolescence, as if I remained unchanged the desperate boy of twelve I had been. Indeed, the very purpose of the office was to act as a counterweight to this most recent spell, to get me dressed and out of the house, to force me to walk on public streets among people, to immerse myself, however anonymously, in the general hum of society and in this way, perhaps, sustain the gestures of normal life. It was therefore imperative that I do battle with my trepidations, I suppressed my fears of the neighborhood and my distress at the building's dreary mean. We were in the midst of the great stagflation, I reminded myself. The whole city, indeed the entire country, had a blasted, exhausted air. Why should the building before me not be similarly afflicted? I therefore turned my gaze from the eyeless gargoyles, told myself there was no reason to be unnerved by the shuttered bar on the ground floor, whose sign creaked in San Francisco's seemingly perpetual wind. Somewhat emboldened by these mental devices, I took the final steps to the entryway. I opened the door to a flash of white, a lobby clad entirely in brilliant marble. So clean and smooth was this marble that one had the sudden impression of having entered a foreign landscape, a snowy whiteout where depth perception was faulty. Through the glare I seemed to see three cherubs floating above the elevators, their eyes of black onyx, which, as I watched in fright, appeared to be moving— It took some moments to understand what hung before me. Elevator floor indicators in the form of bronze cherubs, their eyes circling to watch the floor numbers as the cars rose and fell. To the right of the elevators was a stairway. Above it, a sign directing visitors to the manager's office on the mezzanine. I climbed the short flight, its marble steps concave from years of wear. Then I followed the manager into the elevator and rode with him up to the eighth floor, the cherubim ogling us, I imagine. 
He led me along hallways lined with great slabs of marble wainscoting, each four feet wide and as tall as an average man of the 19th century. Finally, we stood before a door of tenderly varnished fruitwood. Its fittings, knob, backplate, hinges, lock, mail slot, all oxidized to a burnt golden patina. The room he showed me was very small. The desk, settee, and bookcase it contained were battered. The transom above the door had been painted shut. But I had already decided on the strength of the building's interior materials, clearly chosen to withstand the insult of time, that this would be my office. So with the manager's agreement to restore the transom to working order, I signed a one-year lease to commence in three days, the 1st of August. And then throughout the first weeks of my tenancy, while I struggled to regain my footing and begin my project, I was calmed by the currents of dark, cool air that flowed through the transom, the sort of mysterious air that seems to remain undisturbed for decades in the deep interiors of old buildings, and by the side of the aged hotel palace across the way, where I could, in certain lights, see the doings of guests not prudent enough to close their shades. Each weekday I rode downtown on the streetcar, anticipating the pleasures of sitting at my desk, the rumble of the traffic eight stories below me. By month's end, I had made progress on my lectures, producing my first coherent set of notes. Then, shortly after Labor Day, as I sat down to draft the first talk in the series, I found that the acoustical qualities of the office, previously so regenerative, had abruptly changed. Cutting through the pleasant social drone from the streets below, superseding it in both pitch and constancy, was an odd whirring sound, like wind rushing through a keyhole. And just audible above the whir, coming in uneven and therefore intrusive intervals, was a speaking voice, but only its sibilance and dentalizations, only the tongue and teeth, as it were. I am certain it was only the general darkness of my mood, but I felt there was something mocking and threatening in the sibilance, for the sound drew me to it, the way a cat is lured, pss, pss, for drowning. I jumped up from my desk, determined to know the source of these intrusions. I went out into the hall. The stenciled letters on the office door to my left identified its occupants as consulting engineers. I moved my ear closer and heard nothing. I then came to the office on my right, number 804. As I drew closer, the whirr became unmistakable, as did the voice. The gold letters on the door simply read, Dora Schusler, Ph.D. I stood immobile in the hall for some seconds. My first association with the designation Ph.D. was that this Dr. Schusler should be an academic like myself, and that she and I should coexist quite well. Why then was there this whirring and this persistent hissing, and why hadn't I heard from the first, on the day I inspected what was then still my prospective office? These questions posed to myself with an aggrieved, affronted, indignant air distracted me from seeing the truth of my situation, which became clear only as I stared at the swirls of the ancient were-darkened broadland that lined the hall. I recalled the first time I had ever heard a sound like the one issuing from Dr. Schusler's office, which had been many years ago, in the office of one of the many therapists I'd had reason to visit during the course of my life. In the waiting area, there had been a small beige plastic machine placed on the floor, which had given off just such a whir, its role being to blur the clarity of the spoken word that might be audible from the therapeutic offices. With great force, the whole period of time surrounding my meetings with the psychotherapist came back to me, and I could see quite clearly the little yellow lamp she kept on a low table beside her and the vine that covered the single north-facing window, 
its leaves perpetually trembling. I did not wish to recall this portion of my life, especially not of the office where I had sought to escape the great black drapery of my nervous condition. Indeed, finding myself tied to such an enterprise seemed to me an evil joke. Over the course of thirty-five years, meaning weekly, twice a week, sometimes daily, I had looked across small rooms into the bewildered, pitiable faces of counselors, therapists, social workers, analysts, and psychiatrists, each inordinately concerned about his or her own professional nomenclature, credentials, theories, accreditations, all of them in the end, indistinguishable to me. Now, still battling the hooded dew of life that had haunted my family for generations, I had come to the conclusion that their well-meaning talking cures, except as it applied to the most ordinary of unhappinesses, were useless. What now could I do to separate myself from this Dora Schusler? How could I escape her analysands with all their fruitless self-examination, beside whom I was obligated to spend the remaining eleven months of my lease? I had no legal recourse, I realized. I could not go to the manager and say I had been duped, my neighbor had been hushed, paid off to silence the babblings of her profession on the day I had first surveyed the premises. The situation of my room had not been maliciously misrepresented. I had engaged the office in August, iconic month of the therapeutic hiatus. It was now September. Dr. Dora Schusler, Ph.D. and psychotherapist, was back at work. I would move, I thought. I would accept another office on another floor, pursuing any avenue to get away from this therapist, counselor, psychoanalyst, whatever she wished to call herself. I was about to look for the building manager, demand he place me in a different room, when suddenly everything went quiet. It was a whir of the sound machine, abruptly stopped, and in its absence was a stillness so crisp that I could hear the suggestive, teasing, slip sound of a single tissue being withdrawn from a Kleenex box. Then a voice which said, You know I hate that thing. And a reply, So sorry, I do forget. I was so startled by the clarity of the sounds coming from the next office. Indeed, I could hear a sigh, an intake of breath, a lifting of a haunch, to the extent that I knew with utter certainty that both client and analyst sat upon leather, that I could not move for several seconds. What was I to do about this sudden forced intimacy, Perhaps I should have coughed or jostled a drawer so that they, hearing me, would know the extent to which I was hearing them. Yet I sat still, and in a brief instant, through some quirk of reasoning, no doubt related to the generally twisted logic of my mood, I convinced myself that my making noise would be an imposition upon them, that my presence would inhibit them, and the only way for analyst and analysand to continue their work undisturbed was for me to keep my existence a secret." Supporting my decision was the fact that I understood almost nothing of what they were saying. Charlotte, Roger, Susan, who were these people? The hotel, our arrangement, the old projects, the meeting, the assignment, references to empty space. How could I see myself as a trespasser when I had so little comprehension of what I was overhearing? So it was that I simply sat and listened to the sound of their voices, Dr. Schusler's in particular, her spat-out T's and whistled S's, of course, she was German. This explained the mysterious dentalizations and sibilants that had intruded over the whir of the noise machine. Her patient, however, was altogether American, with the flat accent of the Midwest. Her cadence and inflection were like those of my former female graduate students, and I therefore took her to be in her mid or late twenties. 
At some point in her young life, she seemed to have unlearned the worst aspect of her native region's speech, for she had softened the jaw-breaking growl that passed for an R in that part of the world, and had widened the mashed diphthong A, a horrid sound, as if you pinched your nose while saying, yeah, into an open, airy, monosyllabic ah. The effect altogether was of a provincial who had acquired culture at an out-of-town university, perhaps. Now and then, her acculturated layer slipped, an A going nasal, an R growing teeth, which was not at all an unpleasant phenomenon, as it let one hear past her creamy alto into a core of watchfulness and vulnerability. I merely let the sound of these voices play over me. The patient meandered. Dr. Schussler replied occasionally with friendly nonchalance, and in this way more than half the session passed. Then came a moment I distinctly understood. The doctor's voice abruptly changed. Her accent turned harsh. Her tone pointed as she said, So, have you thought further about our discussion before the break? A long pause followed, and as I waited to hear the reply, I realized I had distinguished this moment because of all the therapists and analysts who had insisted upon asking me the same demonic question, and I recalled how much I had detested it, this constant looping backward in time to the last therapized hour, as if everything that had happened in the intervening days or week was not real, or not quite as real as the life lived inside yellow lamplit rooms where ivy trembled at the windows. My goodwill towards Dr. Schusler retreated. I found myself allied with the young and Alessand, with her resistance, what force there was in the annoyed sigh she gave off, and what a long moment she took to lean over and slowly withdraw a tissue from the inevitably close-by box. I know we agreed to go back to it after the break, the patient finally said, but I've changed my mind. I think I've avoided it all my life for good reason. I don't see how it will help me to get into this now. Dr. Schussler made a small, throaty sound but said nothing. There was now another pause, as analyst and analysand sparred to see who could longer endure the silence. Of course, it was the client who gave way. I really don't see the relevance of that to who I am now, she said. I don't want to go there. I told you. I don't see the point. I've made my peace with it. It's a fact like where I grew up or the color of my eyes. Please, I don't see why you keep coming back to it. I told you, some things should just remain a mystery. I was naturally enticed by the idea of a mystery, as anyone would be, and I hoped she might reveal at least the nature of the secret, but for some seconds the analysand did not speak. And then she abruptly changed the subject. The topic to which she leapt was an argument with one Charlotte, a name that had already come up several times in the session. It seemed that she and Charlotte had argued over the arrangement of food in the refrigerator. Then the patient complained that Charlotte always left the kitchen cabinet doors open, Finally, she decried Charlotte's continual invasions of her privacy. I thought this Charlotte must be her roommate. With whom else does one have such dull domestic spats? Dr. Schussler had obviously heard much of this before and was as bored as I was with the course this session was taking. She signaled her disengagement by continually shifting her weight in her leather chair, sending out squeaks and creaks that somehow connoted a jeering disapproval. Finally, she intervened. Remember, said Dr. Schussler, we did talk about whether you were going to take seriously these incompatibilities. It is not simply a matter of housekeeping standards. Charlotte is a bicycle messenger, and you are a financial analyst. She has barely completed a junior college course in accounting, and you have a master's degree in business administration and econometrics. She accuses you of being a collaborator for not being open at work about your lesbianism. I thought, lesbians? She jeers at you for wearing straight business clothes. 
She says you think like a man. These are serious problems, as you yourself have said, and they are not going to disappear simply because Charlotte thought you were stunning, as she put it. Yes, said the patient. Totally true. You're right. But just the same. All that bicycle riding has given her a truly amazing pair of legs. The doctor coughed. The thighs, most especially. Silent from the therapist. And let's just say that I immensely enjoy all the many ways she considers me stunning. Her analyst tisked. You know what I mean, she said. Oh, all right, I do. Of course I do. We're completely different. We have nothing in common. It's ridiculous in so many ways. But when we take our clothes off, when the sex is so very good, lesbian sex, I experienced a moment of extreme titillation. I felt my groin tighten and my penis begin to stir, bodily acts about which I could do nothing. One might as well try to stop one's heart from beating as attempt to prevent this involuntary rush of blood to one's manly parts. Oh, Charlotte's all right, the patient was going on, to my relief, as I began to wilt. Really, you're making too much of the surface differences. It's just that she's so steeped in the politics of lesbianism, the radical idea of it. She can't exactly think for herself. It's as if her body belongs to some community, not to herself. Yes, said Dr. Schusler pointedly, all that is true, but remember what you said not long ago. Charlotte chose you, and you are not sure you would have chosen her in return. The doctor's voice then softened. And this does bring us back to the subject we were discussing before the break. Remember how we talked about the ways this mirrors your relationship with your mother, this profound sense of otherness. The client snorted her impatience. She loudly drummed on the arm of her seat with her fingers and turned herself this way and that amidst much creaking of leather. I told you, she said finally, I don't want to go into this again. I like not knowing where I've come from. I like it. Every child thinks it must have been switched at birth. These can't possibly be my real parents. It's all a big mistake. Well, I just happen to have more evidence than they do. Mine really aren't my parents. I told you this a hundred times. I am not adopted. I have mysterious origins. Dr. Schusler took a breath and then released it. For several seconds, neither client nor therapist moved. They had arrived at last at the heart of the matter, but alas, the hour was too far advanced. What came next were the softly murmured words with which every therapy session inevitably ends. Our time is up, the doctor said. To subscribe to the Writer's Block and hear more stories, visit kqed.org slash writersblock. The Writer's Block is produced by KQED.